0: Hello and welcome to Frankly Speaking, where we dive deep into regional headlines and speak with leading policymakers and business leaders. I am Katie Jensen. On today's program, we hear from Fiona Hill, a former number 10 Downing Street Chief of Staff and trusted advisor to Prime Minister Theresa May. Ms. Hill plans to stage the first security conference focused on promoting global resilience. We ask her whether her work can compare to other events like the World Economic Forum, whether Rishi Sunak can restore the UK's credibility after years of turmoil, and if closer ties between the UK and Saudi Arabia are being welcomed back home. Thank you for joining us on Frankly Speaking. Now, you worked as the Chief of Staff for the former Prime Minister Theresa May. You've also been a media advisor to many prominent figures and and a former journalist as well. So I have to ask, why are you now venturing into the events business? And frankly speaking, does the world
1: really need another forum? (laughs) That's an excellent question to start with. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm moving into uh, the events world. Um, What I'm trying to do is create a new debate, and to be able to create that new debate there needs to be a platform. Um, And so the forum, the Future Resilience Forum, which I'm launching next week, is a platform for moving the dial on how we currently think and speak about foreign and security policy So, I'm not an events expert by any stretch of the imagination. Um, This is really about saying to the world that we in Europe, we in the wider West, need to have a rethink about, or a reset, about how we collaborate, how we do diplomacy, how we set our foreign and security policy over the next 10 to 20 years.
0: Okay, so you say it is about having a debate, but this is still a debate that could take place behind closed doors. So do we need another conference? Because it is quite quite a crowded area globally. We have the World Economic Forum, the Munich Security Conference, and and locally think tanks such as Chatham House and Russia are more than capable of filling the gap. So what is the added
1: value for the Future Resilience Forum? Well, I spent a decade at the top of politics. Um, Very few of those conferences have been set up by former chiefs of staff of a leading liberal Western democracy. So I'm coming at it with a very uh, keen eye on outputs. Um, I want it to almost be a red team Uh, event for uh, policy making um, in governments, a place where people can come and speak frankly and privately, I must add, Um, this is not a big media jamboree, Um, it's essentially a private event for people to be able to discuss. The short-term issues that they might be facing that's preventing them from thinking in the longer term because i think given the challenges that we we face in the world it requires not just that collaborative working but longer-term vision and longer-term thinking and there's certainly some very interesting topics up for debate at the
0: forum now if this is successful would you consider moving it to other countries say saudi arabia for example
1: I wouldn't rule anything out. Whatever feels like it's the right thing for the right to output. That's what I'll do.
0: Interesting. I think watch this space. And I must say, for a first edition, you certainly have a very impressive lineup of speakers. I know the current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, he's going to be giving a keynote speech at the event. What would you say the other main attractions are?
1: I think it's the content. You know, we, yes, we do have good speakers um, and those speakers will bring out the content, but for me it's the content that sells the event. It is a very uh, finely honed uh, content programme this year. We are looking predominantly at what's happening in the Global South and we're examining our approach to the Global South and the West and asking the question, is it working? I think probably we can say no. Um, and then being actually quite honest and asking ourselves why it doesn't work. Um, And listening to those people from those countries tell us what we get wrong. Um, That's a good starting point for me to start working on the policy that is how we get it right in the future and how we reset those relationships, how we deepen them, how we make them meaningful and how we take on competition from China and from Russia. So let's talk a little bit more deeply about the
0: theme, about the theme of resilience. Why resilience? What does it mean to you? And why do you think governments should be looking at this, particularly as we are seeing this this shifting change in power?
1: Yeah. Well, you, your initial question was asking me: uh, Is there really a need for another um, conference? As I said, this is not. What I think of as a conference, this is a debate. Um, And the reason that there's a need for this, and the reason why it's different, and to answer your question um, that you just asked, is that we're starting from a blank slate. You know, everything has changed post 1945, post war. And we are now going through rapid changes, whether that's in technology or whether that's in our climate or whether it's in geopolitical shifts. There's a lot happening at the same time and it's all happening rather quickly. So we need to really start preparing. And part of that preparedness is actually building resilience. If we don't build resilience, then mistakes will be made. So we need to really start from scratch and ask ourselves difficult questions and use the evidence and the material from those difficult questions to start building that resilience so that we can then move into the future for future generations with a kind of security and foreign policy that can stand the test of not just time but the future and what the future looks like and what the future holds.
0: And I think what is key now is whether you can take these words and turn the talk into action. But it certainly is a fascinating uh, arena, particularly because you've had such an interesting career in politics. Uh, at one point, you were labeled the second most powerful woman in number 10 at Downing Street right after your boss, who was, of course, our Prime Minister Theresa May. So. Why, if I can ask, why didn't you consider returning to politics, potentially running as an MP or taking on another government role?
1: Because politics um, and working in government, there is a traditional way of working. And that's the way governments must be run. There has to be order and there has to be uh, bureaucracy and there has to be ways of working. I personally like to think and behave uh, more entrepreneurially. I like to be agile. Um, I like the freedom to, to think uh, for myself and to identify where I feel the risks are. And then building teams, almost like project teams around those risks. I mean, the Future Resilience Forum is, is in effect a large you know, project team Um, And I think it's also very, very useful for governments to have these types of uh, forum uh, conferences running Um, because actually it is a case of all hands on deck right now because of everything I just set out by way of the speed of change and the type of change. So there really, I, I personally, don't think there can be enough of debates going going on in the world right now. Apart from anything else, a debate and speaking to each other is a fantastic way to de-escalate what might end up if we don't speak and if we don't have conferences and if we don't support our governments across the world. We may end up in a place where you know we, we no longer live in peaceful times, not that it's particularly peaceful in some places, but the point is that we all need to work together for a, for a peaceful and a prosperous global security and, and, and world.
0: Well, let's talk about some of these challenges because there is no denying the UK's global reputation isn't at its best these days. We have seen political crisis after political crisis. So what would you say is the main problem and how
1: can it be fixed? Well, I have to say that I don't paint the bleak picture that you have uh, painted of the okay. UK. Um, it may look that we've had a succession of events that, that have taken place, like, for example, Brexit. But really, if you live here, it doesn't feel as perhaps you might see it from from where where you are. I mean, a, we if, demo- if we live in a we live in a democracy, mm. and that means that we have election cycles, mm. and of course, with election cycles, that does throw up you know, various issues. That's just the way democracy works. That's the point of uh, a democracy. Um, But nevertheless, you ask me what I think of uh, the UK at the moment. I think the UK, like every other leading Western liberal democracy, in fact, like pretty much every other country, because of the uh, challenges that I just set out, is working hard to figure it all out, how to explain it to our electorate, um, and to really try and resist short-term political rhetoric that can damage sometimes longer-term policymaking. And I think that the current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, who, as you said, is you know, coming to, to the conference for three hours of his time, um, he understands that. Uh, and he's an extremely clever and able man. Um, and, you know, the right person to, to have at the helm right now. We, as you know, will have an election uh, in the not-too-distant future, and the opposition party under Sir Keir Starmer, you know, these guys are serious also. They also understand the the threats um, and the challenges and the complexity of all those challenges, um, and they're working hard at the, in, during their time in, in opposition, and you'll see them in the coming days, go through their own party conferences, and and it'll be very interesting to hear what they are talking about, what they're saying about uh, what they think the, the right thing well, to well do let's, this let's talk about what some, of of the an- what some of the answers. Are
0: because I know you're saying that life in the UK doesn't seem too bleak at the moment, but uh, but I feel like the average person there would disagree with you. I mean, we consider uh, the various political crises and changes in leadership. I've mentioned uh, fifty thousand refugees are facing homelessness by the end of the year. Something we were reporting on in Arab News just days ago. If you look at the NHS crisis, the the rental crisis. One home has an average number of 25 people waiting in the queue at the moment. The inflation we're seeing there, the the cost of living crisis, that is expected to last another 10 months. Months. And we've seen such a big policy reversal from Rishi Sunak recently talking about net zero targets. People are up in arms about the cancellation of the northern leg of the HS2. Now Sunak might have told media just days ago ahead of the, um, the Tory party conference. He said we're attracting billions of pounds of investment into this country. We are creating jobs everywhere day after day we continue to see these headlines coming out of the UK about the various crises. Are they accurate or is it a
1: media beat up? Well I mean, well, I mean firstly, firstly I'm, I'm, I'm not, not a politician, a politician. I'm um, sure. so I'm not here to defend or, or explain what politicians are doing. Um, and uh, I think everyone in all walks of life have, have problems, that, that that's life. Um, and of course, there will always be people in society who need our help. And that's the role of government. Um, and that's the role of civic society, which you know, I'm involved in um, also. Um, but look, running a country is diff- difficult. It's difficult no matter what type of political structure you have. You know, there will always be competing priorities. And that's, you know, tough to do. All people can do, what leaders can do, is do their best and to be serious and to work hard and to not give in to short-term wins um, at the expense of long-term aim. And, and that's always a juggle for any politician and any government. Okay,
0: but do you acknowledge that some of the blame with the challenges we do see today, that some of that has to fall on Prime Minister Theresa May. After all, we know she could not deliver on Brexit and a long list of other promises too.
1: Well, I'm afraid I don't really play the blame game, if you like, Uh, so I'm not going to blame anyone. I've worked in government, and unless you've worked in government, you can never really know how hard it is and the challenges that you face. Um, Okay, sure,
0: and there's no denying she was certainly dealt a a difficult hand, but there's many pundits out there who would say that she still played that hand pretty badly.
1: I'm not the kind of person who looks back, I look forward. And in looking forward, that's why I've set up the Future Resilience Forum.
0: Okay, what about Boris Johnson? Do you think she would have done a better job at handling the pandemic than uh, than Mr Johnson did?
1: And also not getting into league tables of Prime Ministers and how good or how bad they were, that's pointless to me.
0: Okay, well, let's talk about Rishi Sunak. We were mentioning him. We're talking about our looking towards the future. Now, he has pledged to restore stability after Liz Truss's rather short reign. Now, there are some people who say he is the perfect prime minister, but at the wrong time. What do you
1: think? I think at the end of the day, Rishi Sunak is a man who wakes up in the morning, looks at the challenges that his government faces um, and you know, asks the right questions, and has the right mindset um, and a very good brain to be able to do his very best for his country, and not not just for his country, but also for the good that the UK can do in the world. And I know that he and his team, he's surrounded by an excellent team of advisors. They are really, really good, really good advisors. He's very lucky. But, you know, I I think that they are a good team. And and are they a good team at the wrong time? I mean, a, a good team's a good team. You know, it doesn't matter if it's a wrong time or a bad time. And how do you define what's wrong, a wrong time and a bad time? They're a good team. They'll do what they will need to do. And at the end of the day, they'll be judged at the election by the electorate. And if they succeed, then... they'll they'll obviously be happy about that, and if they don't, then democracy will have done its job and will look to a new set of people to take on and inherit those problems that we currently face.
0: Okay, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on Labour leading in the polls at the moment, but I'll come to that a little bit later. Um, I wanted to ask you something else uh, that Theresa May once famously said. She said, Our security is your security. Very inspiring speech and certainly uh, something that had huge significance here in the GCC. So tell me the story behind that.
1: Well, that was a speech that she gave, um, and I was with her when she delivered that speech. Um, And that was to say that for a very, 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 very long time, the United Kingdom and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia have worked completely together in in a deep and meaningful partnership in counterterrorism in organised crime. um, Pretty much the whole security gambit, the UK has always looked to um, Saudi Arabia as one of its most serious partners um, in, in shaping what our, uh, our security strategy is. And that's really what she was saying. She was saying to the GCC, we cannot have a credible national security strategy if we don't work in concert with, with you because you are absolutely vital to what our security and our security response is.
0: And certainly we have seen that relationship really change and evolve over the last few years. It's been given a welcome boost, particularly the relationship with Saudi Arabia. Some very positive comments recently by the British Defence Minister, Grant Shapser, praising Saudi Arabia for its incredible quick transformation. He also said, forget everything you think you know about Saudi Arabia. So it feels like
1: you're quite supportive of stronger ties between the two kingdoms, would you say? Well, I'm a huge fan of Saudi Arabia. I've um, visited uh, many, many times in, in my life, and I have friends there. Um, and I think it's amazing the progress that uh, has happened, um, and it's a really vibrant and exciting place right now, and a great place to be and to visit um, as a tourist. Um, but you know, I, for me, I, I don't really see borders. I really, really don't. Um, I've always been like that. I I don't think of a country being in a far-off place and and, and not uh, something to be thought about in my everyday thinking about what the challenges in the world might be. Um, So I'm a little bit of a, I don't know, a nomad like that. You know, once I rack up in a country, I I absorb it and I love it. And, and, you know, obviously I have my favourite countries to, to visit and Saudi actually happens to be one of them.
0: Interesting. I know you've got a very good network here in Saudi. I know you're very well connected with various ambassadors and ministers, newspaper editors as well as well as our major business people. Um, I'd be interested to understand what what are your thoughts on some of the sweeping reforms, the biggest changes that you've seen uh, in Saudi over the last few years. I know you were here uh, in Saudi this time last year. Um, so, so what are the biggest changes you've seen?
1: Well, I think it's just a very simple transition from being reliant on one thing for an economy. Um, you know, KSA is still relatively a, a young country, um, and so rightly uh, the, your government is looking to diversify that reliance. Um, that seems to me to be very, very sensible, um, and you know, keeping up with the modern world um, through technology and so forth. Again just very sensible um, and I, I think it's amazing uh, that the pace at, at which um, the Crown Prince and his government have managed to do it and you know, I wish every amount of luck um, uh, for further progress because as Theresa said, you know, your security is our security and what's interesting to me actually um, in organising the Future Resilience Forum is, is how that's actually becoming even more the case. Than, than before. As we see China dominance in the global south, we will look to countries like Saudi Arabia or Qatar um, almost as uh, shock absorbers between east and west. So, you know, that security relationship, uh, far from becoming less relevant in, in the future, I see it as being almost absolutely critical in, in the future and for security in, in, in the west. And I think uh, I
0: know you are a regular visitor to the region I know you're in uh, Doha recently and I wanted to talk about what's taking place in the UAE at the moment a major meeting coming up of course COP28 a big climate change summit that will be taking place in November. Now the UAE has received quite a lot of criticism because it is also a major Oil producer. Of course the, the obvious comeback to that would be that you know so was Scotland when they hosted a couple of years ago. So do you think some of those criticisms are justified?
1: Well sadly actually Scotland isn't as big a producer as I think it ought to be. Um, being Scottish I'm very very proud um, of our oil and gas industry um, I understand that the need uh, to meet those climate challenges are very, very real. Um, but I don't think we should be throwing the baby out of the bathwater too quickly because this transition will take time. And it won't just take time in terms of how we get the right technology and how we get replacement energy. It's also about how people will react to it and how people will absorb it into their new, their new everyday ways of using energy and consuming energy. And that, that just won't happen overnight. And so when people are critical of, of any country and, and um, its use of fossil fuels, I get it. Uh, People care about the the planet. But I do think we have to be pragmatic about this. And pragmatism, for me, always wins the day. And that's what I think the approach ought to be to the, the energy transition.
0: And I think you make an interesting point. I think that's why a country like the UAE is involved in this. We certainly heard from the, uh, the COP28 president-designate. Uh, he's talked about why it's so important for oil and gas companies to be involved in the discussion of this transition. And you look at someone like Adolf produces one of the lowest yep. carbon uh, crude oil producers in
1: the world. So I, I yep. think that's an interesting point. Um, my last, well, I, I, and, and also, we, we can't do it without a big economy like China. You know, so, so we need be, there's literally no point in criticising other countries um, for uh, fossil fuels. We've all been living with fossil fuels for, for, for years and years and years and years. What we need to do is work together and work in collaboration and be honest brokers about what really is achievable in, in each and every country. I mean, the UK is tiny. Um, compared to um, other countries in terms of its emissions. And yes, we can lead by showing that we are intent on on dropping those emissions to meet the the climate challenge. But it's really those big economies like China and America um, that will have the biggest impact purely because they are the countries with the highest uh, source of, of, of emissions. And I think climate change certainly does need to be addressed. But I think
0: it's also important to note that a lot of the countries who have complained about the lack of change are those that really flourished as a result of the Industrial Revolution. Countries like the US, like the UK and the huge amount of emissions that have taken place in their nations since then. But uh, my final question is, we're almost out of time now, almost every political analyst is expecting Labor to take over the helm at number 10 Downing Street very soon. They do have a very healthy lead in the polls. So what is your assessment of the situation? Is Keir Starmer the right person for the job? And if you were to advise him, what would you say he needs to tackle first?
1: Well, the first thing I would say is that uh, having been part of the 2017 general election campaign with Theresa May, where all the polls indicated that we would have an 80 plus majority and then we ended up uh, losing <laughs> uh, more or less. I mean, we hung on um, with a few seats, but you know, no one thought that Theresa would lose that election and she did. So, you know, polls can get it wrong um, and they often do. So if anyone tells you that they know what will happen at the UK election when it happens, then they maybe know something I don't. Um, What advice would I give Cure? Come to the Future Resilience Forum um, and find out what's happening uh, in terms of security and foreign policy and and where the debate is um, and, and get ready for what will be a very difficult time to be a Prime Minister, you know, these are not easy times. For all, you, you, you said this yourself earlier. And so it really does test the mettle of a person who can take on a job like Prime Minister in the United Kingdom right now with the challenges that, that Prime Minister will face. Do you think he's the right man for the job though?
0: Because a lot of people say that he's still more of a lawyer than a politician.
1: I've met him, he's a very nice man. Um, he is there to do the right thing. Uh, and at the end of the day, the key thing is, for anyone in that job, that they have to have that desire of public service and doing the right thing, and he has that. We will find out very soon. Uh, Miss thank you very we much will. for joining
0: us today. Best of luck. We look forward to hopefully seeing the forum uh, over in Saudi or the GCC very soon. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us today on Frankly Speak.
1: Thank you so much, and thank you to Arab News um, for inviting me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.